so I tell that to Joe, and I say, did he speak to you during this fight? He said, to me, I'll never forget it. He said, it's the 15th round. I got to fight one. And they told him that. He's got to knock me out. Comes out. He's throwing jabs. He's looking good. And then he starts to yell at me. Fool. 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 You can't stand up. God has ordained I will be the heavyweight championship forever. Forever. You can't stand up against God. Don't You've got to go down. And with that, Frazier steps inside, hits him with a left hook. As Ali is falling, Joe says, well, God's going to get his ass whipped tonight. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm really proud to offer my guest this week, legendary boxing writer Jerry Eisenberg, who has been writing about boxing much longer than I have been alive. Jerry celebrated his 90th birthday back on September 10th. He just finished his first novel, and we came on ostensibly to talk about the 50th anniversary of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier's epic first fight, what it was like for him to cover the trilogy, but really, I'd never talked to Jerry before, and so it was just a thrill to talk to somebody that just has such incredible access and scope of knowledge and experience in this game. Um, So I really hope you enjoy my guest this week, Jerry Eisenberg, on Tourist Information. Jerry, um, we're going to discuss your book, Once There Were Giants, and drop into the three alley fights that you covered. Um, where, where should we start here? Well, you have to start, really, as far as... You have to start with the... With the see, I have a theory that the first fight was fought for America. And what I mean by that is the country, you know, was so divided over Vietnam. <clears throat> but these guys became representative of the struggle. But they weren't representative. I think back to 1938, Schmeling and Lewis tore this country apart in a lot of ways. There were America first people who didn't want to stand up to Germany. There were New York whole area in New York City was totally German American Bund, and the Bund made an alliance with the Klan, and uh, there was a lot of hatred in that in that stance, but, he, but for the wrong reasons. Lewis and Schmeling, and I point this out for a reason. To me, they were symbols of what was on everybody's mind. They weren't fighting for the cause that everybody attributed to them. And Ali and Fraser, to me, were also symbols. They made Ali stand for if you were against a war in, in Vietnam, and they made Fraser stand for if you were pro-war or whatever, or thought it was on America to be against it. So they, so the, so that was the most this country was divided. Uh, until recently, we'll forget about that right now. But that was the most this country was ever divided in my lifetime. I'm 90 years old. And and the two areas were very similar to each other. And the emotions that it aroused in us were unbelievable. For example, about a year and a few months before they finally fought, um, the uh, hard hatch construction guys, and hippies fought in the street in front of City Hall in New York City. Fought in the street with pipes and bats and whatever else. And they moved up the street and fought for several blocks higher through the city. That's emotion. <laughs> and as a result, you know, there, were, there was no neutrality about that. And and the people who were the, the audience in the first fight colleagues of mine speculated was about 70-30 Ali. And the reason for that was uh, you couldn't get a ticket. Sinatra had to be a photographer to get to get into the building. You could not get a ticket. And therefore, the people who could bribe their way in or whatever else, they were the people that had the money in New York City. Garment center people, um, uh, celebrities, uh, people like that. And as a result of that, um, uh, they by the money people were really much more on Ali's side. They probably were also better educated people. But I, but I, I like so that's the way it started. And as everybody knows, 
Frazier win the fight. But before I get to that, I want to tell you something. Sure. Frazier had a... a um, Ali had to work to get this fight, okay? I remember, yeah, he was turned out everywhere he went, you could fight, but then there would be demonstrations, no, you can't fight. So right near the end of this quest, they go to a place called Chandler, Arizona, and it's not far from an Indian reservation. Now, Zara Folly lived there, and he was the last guy Ali fought, and then he was put in exile. So somebody said, well, you know, let's go fight Folly again. We'll fight him out there. And Indian land is not subject to federal or state jurisdiction. They can do whatever they want. So they go to the reservation. They talk to the tribal council. They tell them, listen, we'll build you a 20,000-seat wooden stadium. You can use it as a high school stadium later on. But we'll fight there. And every penny that comes in through that box office is yours. Plus, we'll give you a closed-circuit television uh, um, location where you can get all the money there. Well, they were delighted, so they shook hands, and Ali leaves the reservation thinking he's finally going to fight. And then the old Department of HEW, Health, Education, and Welfare, uh, calls the Indian Reservation, and they say to somebody there, if you like that poverty money that's coming in, I suggest you not hold the fight. And there was no fight. Hmm. Lester Maddox, who was the governor of Georgia, total racist, he really, really didn't have any feelings at that point. So he said, yeah, you can fight here. Then they got the demonstrators in. Then there was no fight. Well, what Lester Maddox didn't know, I didn't know, and nobody really thought about it, the state of Georgia had no boxing commission, none. Hmm. So uh, a, a senator named Leroy Johnson, who happened to be black, uh, lived in uh, Atlanta. Uh, he set up the Fulton County, Georgia Athletic Commission and told Ali, you can come down here and fight any time you want and Quarry will fight you. That's how he come back was arranged, finally. Hmm. The comeback was really tough because three, you give up. Look, take Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire or any of the great dancers. You think they could stay three years away from doing one step and then come back and be as good as they were before. Yeah, Ali had to make up for what he didn't have. So now he goes down there. He's really not in good shape. And um, I'm with him. We, we, we listen. We were friends for 50 years. So I'm with him and sitting in this rundown gym outside of Atlanta. And so help me. We're sitting on a bench that has only three legs. So every time we talk, it moves back and forth. And Ali reaches over and pats me on the top of the head and says, you know, when I met you, you had hair up there. <laughs> and I throw a fake punch at his stomach. And I said, when I met you, you weren't carrying around a 25-pound extra spare tire. Mm. I said, you know, I said, Jim, I guess we're getting old. And he said, oh, no, no, you're getting old. I'm not getting old. <laughs> All right, so now comes the fight. Very emotional moment. Ali comes out. Ali had a habit. He could... He could stop the clock. He did it uh, a number of times. He couldn't do it when he fought Holmes, but he could do it. He could stop it for maybe a minute, and he looked like the old Ali, and then everything was downhill after that. He comes out when the bell rings, and he's all over Quarry, and the jab is going pop, 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 and a right cross, and a jab, pop, 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 and then the uppercut, and he, he's really totally outclassing Quarry. The, the bell rings, the round ends. I look over at the round he doesn't sit down on his stool. He flops on his stool. His belly is even like a beach whale. His mouth is open. And I said, I know this guy well. And I know he always finds a way. But he better find it in the first five or six rounds because he ain't going to go the distance to his condition. Mm. And anyway, fortuitously, there was a cut in the second round. And in the third round, they stopped it. Uh, so he now gets past the first hurdle. But he's still got to fight somebody. He is not in shape. And he's got to fight somebody who is, who they, and it was kind of a free cut on with Quarry. They got to prove that he's, he's won a victory before he can fight Frazier. So uh, he picks Oscar Bonavina. Oscar Bonavina could knock his fist to a, a wall. He hit Joe Frazier so hard in their 10 round fight, which Frazier won, but he almost knocked Frazier out of the ring. It was a good test. 
And it was a good fight at Madison Square Garden. Ali, I think, was probably ahead. But it was a tough fight, very tough. And he knew he had to do something dramatic. He hits Bonavino with a left hook. Ali was not a puncher. Everybody gives this guy credit for this. That we, you know, he was who he was. Bad guys he knocked out in the first and second round. Good fighters, the knockout didn't come to later, and it came not because of his power, but because of attrition. He beat on you and beat on you, and you went down. And and uh, so he really, it was a shock. The left hook was a shock. I ended the fight didn't end then, but it ended as far as Bonavina's willingness. All right, so now he's got to fight Frazier. And he's got to make that fight. He's got to get that fight. He's got to make people want that fight. Well, he's got something that they, nobody else had. He's got the Vietnam conflict, and that's what's really stirring people up. Now, he goes to Philadelphia, and he's on a radio show, and he calls Frazier a slow, uh, incompetent fighter, who is really an Uncle Tom. And Frazier's demon. He's really steaming. Now he goes to the Joe Frazier gym, and he's banging on the window. Come on out, Joe Frazier. Come on out. Come on out. We're going to do it right now. We're going to do it. And, and with all that going on, you have to understand, when Ali ever did stuff like that, which he often did, out of the side of his mouth, he's telling the 12 guys behind him, hold me back, guys. Hold me back. Let's not have a fight here. Frazier... Was what you saw with Frank is what you got. And he starts out. He's livid about being called an Uncle Tom. He's trying to get out to do a Yank Durham, who was then alive and was his original manager, grabs him, throws him into a chair, and says, you sit your ass down. If we have the fight of the century, it ain't going to be on a run-down side street across from a, range station, a train station in Philadelphia. We're going to make money. So... There was no argument, no confrontation, nothing. They get to fight finally, and I mentioned about the the uh, hippies and uh, and the uh, hard hats fighting. It was just, the country was just totally, totally divided. So here's how I view the first fight. The first fight was fought for the people. The people, Ali and Fraser, had nothing on their mind but beating each other. Uh, and Ali was not yet back enough. He was going to lose this fight. And no matter what he tried to say later, he did lose that fight by two or three clear rounds. Mm-hmm. Well, in that fight, after it's over, Frazier goes to the hospital. Ali goes to the nearest talk show and starts saying, I want to fight. They took it away from me. I'm a black man. That's what it's about. It was a political decision. And he's got, now he's got to have to come to convinced again. Fraser Steeman. So I call him up about five, six days after the fight and say, I want to see you. And he says, well, I want to see you. Come down here. I go down here. Same gym, Joe Fraser gym, dark, unlit, barely lit side street. I go into the gym. I see a photograph enlarged so it runs from the ceiling to the floor. And in it, Ali's on his ass. And Joe is headed for a neutral corner. And I say, you didn't waste much time, did you? And he says, no. He said, that son of a son of a... He never finished the sentence. He said, here's what we're going to do. We'll go to a local deli. We'll get some sandwiches. We'll come back and eat. And I'll tell you about that fight. Okay? So we go down to this place. The gopher goes in to get the sandwiches. Another gopher is standing by him. You couldn't make this up if you tried. Three little black kids come running down the hill yelling, Joe Frazier, Joe Frazier, Joe Frazier. He likes that. And he says to the other gopher, go to the car, get me three autographed pictures. I want to give them to the kids. Then he gives them his speech, you know, don't drop out of school. They're eight years old. Where are they going? Don't drop out of school. Don't hurt nobody. Uh, and and always try to do the right thing. And then one of the kids says to him, now these kids are about eight. My daddy says Muhammad Ali was drugged. Fraser's a very dark, complexed black man. Looked like an albino. He got so uh, furious. He gets down on his knees so that his head is even with the little kid. I don't know what he's going to do. And he says, you go home and you tell your daddy he's right. I drug him. 
I drug him with three left hooks like this, and he throws the left hook in the air, and the three kids run away. Well, when we got back to the gym after the three kids were scared to death, uh, I said to him, listen, Mohammed and I are always arguing. He said, why do you write that stuff about me? I don't talk in the ring. I don't speak in the ring. Why do you? Well, he does. He yells. He screams. Whatever else. Because he's into the fight. And he doesn't even know he's talking. So I tell that to Joe and I say, did he speak to you during this fight? He said, to me, I'll never forget it. He said, it's the 15th round. I got to fight one. And they told him that. He's got to knock me out. Comes out. He's throwing champs. He's looking good. And then he starts to yell at me. Fool. 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 You can't stand up. God is ordained. I will be the heavyweight championship forever. Forever. You can't stand up against God. Don't you got to go down. And with that, Frazier steps inside, hits him with a left hook. As Ali is falling, Joe says, well, God's going to get his ass whipped tonight. <laughs> and th- that was told to me by Fred that Frazier was word for word. He then turns to me and says something that is prophetic in terms of his entire life. He says, you saw it? I want it. What I got to do? What the hell I got to do to get that man out of my, get his shadow out of my life? And the answer was he could do nothing. That shadow followed him the rest of his life. So they make the rematch because there's too much money to be picked up. But a funny thing happens. George Foreman knocks Joe Frazier out with an uppercut that lifts him off the ground. Terrible performance by Frazier. And now there's no now the champion is George Foreman. But they got to fight each other in the rematch. They don't want to be there. So this now the anger is being fueled. Ali, in his in his immature way, is angry at Frazier for losing the title because he could have won it back here. He thinks. Frazier is angry that he's in this fight. Why are you having this fight? I I should go on another chance at Foreman. I'll tell you, if the fighters were named Smith and Jones and I didn't have to work, I would have walked out in the fourth round. Terrible, terrible fight. <laughs> Nobody had a lot of interest in it. I mean, from the fighters. As a matter of fact, I felt that probably, I probably would have gotten the uh, the hot McGandy seal of good approval. Uh, good approval. As a, as a pacifistic exercise. So now, uh, the re- and, it may, and the referee made it worse. I think it was Tony Perez. I'm not sure, but I think it was. He stops the first round a minute early because he says he heard a bell, and Frazier was in trouble. Then. So now they go the separate ways, and they're fighting. They're, fighting. they're, they're both chasing the title, they hope. But there never would have been a third fight. Joe Frazier kind of washed up by then. He's not impressive. Ali goes to Africa and wins the title from Foreman. So he goes to Malaysia and he fights Joe Bugner. And it's what, if it were a baseball game, it would have been a no-hitter. Hmm. Ali wins the fight, of course, but doesn't have to expand himself. It's 100 degrees outdoors. It's terrible. So uh, now it's two days before the fight takes place. There were eight of us, eight Americans, that went to that fight. Ali calls us two days before the fight and says, I'm having a press conference. He says, fellas, I'm tired of it. I've been fighting since I'm a little kid. I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, I'm officially announcing that this will be my last fight. Of course, so eight idiots went to their rooms to write that he's retiring, blah, blah, blah. Now, Dave Anderson from the New York Times and I are walking down the hall, and we hear this voice. Man can't fight. He can't fight. I'll knock him out. I'll knock him out. We look at each other. We walk in the room. It's Ali, of course. He said, oh, hi, fellas. I said, I thought you retired. He said, oh, I was just trying to sell tickets. So you're saying you're now unretired. Yeah, I'm now unretired. You can write that for your newspapers. I'm telling you this. You're permanently unretired because you're going to fight that guy whether you want or not. I ain't writing three stories today. So we know it's up. We know they haven't announced it, but we know he's going to fight Frazier. And he thinks it's a very easy fight. He doesn't take it too seriously, training for it. Frazier, I used to joke with Frazier all the time and say, if um, if um, you your shoelaces are open and you fall, 
you're not going to be able to get up because you, you don't have any right hand. You can't tie your shoe. And he had no right hand. And Eddie Fudge, the um, the uh, manager, because Yank was dead by then, hires George Benton, a very good middleweight. You teach him to throw a right hand. I don't care if it's a pity pat punch. I don't care if it misses. I want Allie, who's always thinking, I want him to see that right hand and say, where did that come from? And that'll slow him down a little bit. And he did give him a half-assed right hand. Well, this fight was like a Wall Street graph. You know, it was up, down, up, and down. It's incredible. There's no knockdowns, and yet it's the greatest heavyweight fight ever, ever. Uh, and I, the reason I said what made it great is there were hardly any clinches. Two days before the fight, the chairman of the Filipino Boxing Commission, he's a soldier, a colonel, he sits down and he says, you guys have been arguing that a Filipino is not strong enough to referee this fight. So here, i got to settle this debate. He pulls his forty-five out of his holster, slams it down on a table, points to the gun and says, are there any arguments here because I've decided a Filipino will work this fight? Well, there was an American pro football player named Rowan Gabriel who was the biggest Filipino I ever saw in my life because they are really a group of small people. In comes the guy who's got a referee. He's bigger than Roman Gabriel and tougher. His name is Sonny Padilla, and he worked the masterful fight. But the reason I don't think there are many clinches is because Sonny says uh, when the bell rings early in the fight, Ali puts his glove behind Fraser's head, pulls it down as he's throwing an uppercut. And, and Sonny leans in and he says, the next time you do that, you lose a point. You do it a second time, you're out of this building. Joe hits Frazier, hits uh, Ali low. He says, the next time you do that, you lose a point. And the next time after that, you're out of this building. And I really think they were afraid to clinch because he really laid the law down. Hmm. Well, it was the most brutal. If I had to describe that fight, I would say it was what boxing can be at the ultimate. It was a brutal, almost barbaric, magnificent ballet. Because when you've got a boxer and a puncher, what the, the pattern of the fight is always the same. But these guys had the patents on the original pattern. The boxer will always try to make the ring bigger by moving around, moving around, moving around. A lot of jabs, moving around, and then getting in and out, in and out. The puncher will try to take, if the boxer takes one step to his left, the puncher, because his right is facing the boxer's left, will take two steps. And the idea is to shrink the ring, make it smaller, get him on the ropes. Both guys succeeded at times in doing what they wanted to do. It was an incredible fight. They were so worn down. Now Joe's eyes began to close, and Joe Frazier always fought in a crouch, always. So he had to straighten up to see, and that, that really made the eye worse. Somewhere between the 11th, 12th, 13th round, somewhere's in there. Joe is standing there. His legs are wobbling like wet spaghetti. His stomach is heaving. His arms are at his side. He's really beat. Ali is only two feet away. All he's got to do is walk two feet and push him. The fight's over. Ali could not walk those two feet. That's how debilitated both fighters were by then. And as you know, it stopped after 14 when they cut the gloves off Joe because of his eyes. But uh, Ali came up the alley. He was limping. He had fallen to the floor when the decision was announced. He was limping, and he, he leaned in. I was sitting between Dave Anderson from the New York Times and Jerry Lister from the New York Post. And he knew the three of us well. He leaned in, and he said, fellas, that's the closest you will ever see to death. And he limped away, and I said to Lisker, I don't want to see anything any closer because I'd be dead. Hmm. But now i got to write a column. Now, writing a story is one thing. Writing a column, which is opinionated and everything else, that takes some doing. But I only got 40 minutes to get it done. And I will tell you this, not to praise me, but to tell you how this fight went. This is what I wrote at that point. I said, 
Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier did not come to Manila to fight for the World Boxing Council Championship, nor were they here to fight for the championship of the planet. They could have fought inside a phone booth on a melting ice floe because because they were fighting for something of far more importance to them. They were fighting for the championship of each other. And I'm convinced now that since they'll never fight again, that little question will never be settled. Hmm. Can I ask you something, Jerry? You can ask me anything you want. I, I didn't mean to dominate like that. No, 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 no. I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, had that fight been permitted to go on, how in your mind does it unfold? Well, as I said, Ali's ahead. Frazier hits him with a right hand, which Ali thought he didn't have. You're an old man. you got no right hand. You're an old man. And Frazier goes back, asks George Benton. He hits him again with a right hand. Now, Ali's a thinking fighter. Well, the right hand changes the fight a little bit because Joe is always a one-handed fighter. And so while he's thinking, Joe takes the lead. And now it's going up and down, up and down. I have no clear leader. I can tell you the way I viewed it. I don't pay much attention to judges' scorecards. My scorecard read like this. Going into the 15th round, which never happened because it ended after 14. Going into the 15th round, I had Ali ahead by one point. If Frazier, for some miracle, knocks him down and gets a 10-8 round, he wins the fight. But if he wins the round, just wins it on my scorecard, that's a draw. I I remember I said to Jerry Risker one point, I said, Jerry, why don't they send everybody home and say nobody lost? I mean, it, I don't. It, it's just someone's going to get badly hurt, and neither fighter was ever the same after that fight. The first fight had no impact on them physically. The second fight had no impact on anybody because they didn't hit each other that much. But the third fight, that was their finest hour, and it didn't decide anything. In your mind, is Muhammad Ali the most important athlete of the 20th century? Only in impact. You know, hmm. I, I was, they made Michael Jordan, which is ridiculous. But, uh, but because of his skill and because of the titles, Muhammad Ali was the most important athlete of the 20th century because of the way his behavior, his ability... And his achievements impacted on the whole world. And they did. Starting with the Vietnam argument. Not the most skillful. He was, in fact, in my group, he's not the best heavyweight ever. He's up there, high, but he's not the best one. Do you do you in any way think that Ali's issues with George Foreman, that if Tyson had been at his peak, say around the time of Michael Spinks, does he do better against Ali than for, than Frazier did? How do you how could you do better than Frazier? Well, I just mean, in the sense of uh, no, I mean bigger, that fight. Yeah, that, that fight was simply nobody lost it. I mean that's how tight it was. Yeah. Uh, if Tyson had fought at their peak, that's always the other thing. Is you know people change, games change. If you're talking about basketball teams, you go back before 1970, and there was no dunking. Nobody even thought of it. You know, the game, whatever the sport is, the baseball, the, the, you get a lively ball. They decide you want more home runs, you make a little ball more lively. Now home run records get broken. Uh, you have to take a guy by his era. If, if, so there never could have been a Tyson Alley fight. But if there could have been, um, if there could have been, it would have been, to a fight fan, more exciting than Ali Frazier 3 because Tyson would be there like, you know, like Frazier would be right in front of Ali, but he, he'd hurt Ali. Ali would win the fight, but he would hurt him. Hmm. And and uh, But you can't do that if you think, look, look at what Larry Holmes did to Ali the, la the next to last fight of Ali's life. It was horrible, painful. Uh, they tried to get Ali down to look like a fighter, and they gave him they gave him uh, uh, things to increase his urine. I forget what you call them now. And and as a result of that, um, 
Uh, Ali couldn't lift his hands in the ring by the time he got to the fight. But if Foreman, but if but if but if uh, uh, Holmes fought Ali when Ali was at his peak, that'd have been a hell of a fight because Holmes could have might have won it, might have had a chance. Hmm. See, but again, you know, you got to remember Ali was never the same when he came back for the first Frazier fight. You know? Yeah. Uh, and that's why he fought a lot of guys. He did fight a lot of guys who weren't very good. He fought a stone cutter from Belgium and knocked him out in the first round, and the guy pulled his gloves off and ran over to Ali's corner and asked him to autograph the glove. I mean, those kind of guys don't add to your record. Right. But Foreman, uh, look, you know, here, I'm going to give you the best explanation of everything. It's an explanation of boxing, and that's important because boxing for writers is the easiest sport to fake. Because the fans don't know what they're seeing either. Um, judges often ignore body punches because they can't see them. Um, but if you look at the, if you look at um, the way it turned out for Ali and and Fraser, they were ruined by the third fight. They were ruined. Ali fought courageously and he he won a tremendous victory over um, over. Uh, Great shavers, uh, great great single, hardest single punch heavyweight I ever saw. Knocked out with one punch. He won a great victory. He was unconscious on his feet, but he won the fifteenth round and he won the fight. Um, Ali did, um, but he was not the same Ali. You, let me let me ask you this. Let's take Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, okay? Sure. And say you can't. Top dance one step for three years. Now go back and play in this movie. How do you think they do? They're never the same. Yep. So, so uh, hypoth- I don't like to do hypotheticals because they are hypothetical. You know, yeah. and the conditions are different. Now, you guys, here's another thing about Manila. Those guys were fighting in a non-air-conditioned building. A hundred degree heat before they turn their lights on for the for the for the ringside. You don't think that was a factor in fight two in debilitating them? Sure. Every everything is different. I mean, every fight is a new is a new new fight. But with these two guys, this was the best. Each fighter, each of these. One thing about these two guys, they always made each other better than they really were. In other words, they, they, they were so determined that they lifted their game up another notch. And 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 there are so many factors in that fight in Manila. And, and also, I, I think Ali might have done better if he hadn't taken him so lightly, which he did. But he thought, you know, he's done. I don't have to worry about him. Well, he had a lot to worry about. Hmm. Uh, I never saw a heavyweight fight like that in my life. How... Do you think that the myth of Ali now coming up on five years after his death is overtaking the man that you knew? Everybody, the myth always overtakes the man. I don't care whether it's politics or whether it's football or or whether it's science. The myth always overtakes the man. Yes, I think... Ali had so many different sides to him. Very complex person. But, you know, look at the qualities they gave him. Now, I'm talking about a guy who was one of my best friends in life for 50 years. In fact, the day after he died, uh, I was up in uh, Stone in New York being inducted into the Box- International Boxing Hall of Fame. And uh, uh, it's funny, they happened at the same time. I remember my speech. It was raining. The clouds got dark. I remember making a making a comment about my friend died this week, and for me the heavens are crying for him. Um, hmm. He he did. I saw he did nothing, but I saw him do good things that nobody did. Gene Kilroy, who was uh, the business manager in the camp, he told me a story. Now think about this: Ali's sitting in um, the Statler Hotel. Before he's going to fight Shavers, uh, two or three days before, and the guy eyewitness news on Channel Seven or whatever it is, 
And there's a story on there about a Jewish old age home in the Bronx. And they're going to lose their lease. And they have to come up with money, big money. And if they can't come up with that money before Christmas, they're out in in the snow. After Christmas, they're going to be after in the, you know in late January they're going to be all right because they got a donor who has put aside money for them. But they got to pay the rent in December. Ali hears the story and he says, "You think that's true?" And welcome to the real world, Muhammad. He gets Kilroy with a checkbook. They go up there. They ring the doorbell. The rabbi answers the door. Of course, he knew who he was, and he says, "What are you doing here?" So I'm getting snowed on. Let us in, and I'll tell you what I'm doing here. They get in, and he says, now, he tells them the story, and he says, well, yeah, it's true. It's true. Yes, it's true. It's true. We need we need money. We desperately have to get it. He said, okay. He said, Kilroy, write him a check. I won't tell you how much the check was for, because I always promise never to tell the story. But I'll say this. If you're counting and you stop at... 200,000, you can count a little more. Hmm. And Kilroy says, well, who do I, I don't know these people. Who do I make the change? Ali being Ali says, make it out to the Jews. I don't know. Then he, being Ali, he, he's always in character. He, you know, he'll get back, and when he gets out of it and lets his guard down, he comes back. So he's, he gives the guy the check, turns, and I know he's counting the number of steps he's going to go to the door, turns back, and he says, now that's for this year. Go get the Jews to help you next year because they got a lot of money. That was Ali. Hmm. I mean, he, he did things to people that were just amazing. And and Frazier was good. You know, the idea of people vilified Frazier, they never should have. I'll tell you how, the one other thing I wanted to say, I, I left this out, but I want to tell you this. Remember I said they were angry for the second fight, right? Mm-hmm. Anger turned to hatred, I'll tell you how. Ali's walking down 8th Avenue where all the junk shops are. And uh, he goes into the souvenir stand, and he sees a little gorilla on the shelf. He picks up the gorilla, punches it, puts it in his pocket. And at the press conference, he says, it'll be a chiller and a thriller in Manila. When I get the gorilla, come on, gorilla, and he punches him. Well, what happened was Marvis Frazier, his son, was only 12 years old then, and they were calling his father a gorilla in school. And Marvis came home crying. And he also was marked up a little bit. He may have had a fight with somebody over this. And Joe says, what's going on here? And he said, they call you a gorilla, Daddy. They call my daddy a gorilla. You don't mess with Joe Frazier's kids. I mean, they knew him very well. Joe Frazier's kids were his life in many ways. And he never forgot that. Never. And I'll tell you how I know it's true that he never forgot it. They had these phony things where they made up and all that. He wasn't making up. 25 years after Ali Fort Fraser in Manila, 25 years after the greatest heavyweight fight I ever saw, I thought to myself, well, you know, I was so, not sentimental, but I I was so, for some reason I was afraid to throw away my notebook from that fight. I had all the quotes and everything in it. I said, let me do another piece 25 years later, then and now. So I, I spoke to everybody. I spoke to the referee. I spoke to the fighters. I spoke to the guys who were in the corners. And I, and, I, and then I updated it by calling each one of them on the phone to bring it, to make it then and now. So I'm on the phone with Ali, and he says, I don't know why Joe is so mad at me. Um, uh, I never did anything to him. I made him a lot of money. And I said, look, you know that Marvin's phrase, he said he didn't know it. Marvin's phrase came home crying. You made Joe's kid cry. You think Joe, you know Joe, you think he's going to forget that? He said, well, do me a favor. You're going to call him? I said, as soon as I put this phone down. He said, call him and ask, tell him from me. I apologize if I hurt anybody in this family. I didn't mean to do that. I'm just trying to sell tickets. And uh, so I called Joe. And Joe, Joe stopped calling him Ali. He stopped calling him Clay. He said, did you speak to him now, that's how much yeah, this would give him. And he said, yeah, he said, uh, he apologizes. Uh, he apologized? Tell me what he said exactly. And I tell him the apology about Marvis. He didn't mean to hurt Marvis. He says, okay, when we finish our interview, do me a favor. 
call him back, and you could tell him, Joe Fraker, take his apology and shove it up as far up his ass as it will go. And that's how he felt about it. Now, there's one, there's one PS to that. Years later, years later, probably, oh, God. Well, I'll, I'll say as recently as, like, 20 years ago. I'm at the boxing riders dinner in New York, and Joe's sitting at the table next to me. Now, Allie has lost the power of speech by this time. He's not in the room. And Joe taps me on his shoulder and he says, look, he said, you heard him speak lately? You heard him talk? He used to say, I talk, da, da, da. You ever hear him try to talk now? And, and you look at my face and look at me? It's a judgment from a higher power is all I could say. So he never made up. It's a long answer, but it's the truth. Do you think Ali went too far over the line, calling him an Uncle Tom and yes. yeah, the I cruelty? I yeah. do. I do. I absolutely do. On the other hand, yeah, because, you know, you remember I talked about the anger. Part of the anger came early anger, you know, new, in the early in the relationship. You know, Fraser lent him money on the street. And Fraser went to the commission and tried to get his license back, not to fight him, but get it back. He said the man has earned it. He was a champion. You have no right to take this your license away. They didn't. They didn't restore it at that time. But so Joe felt he'd done everything he could do. You know, I'll tell you when it comes out. You know, you got something deep inside you, and you don't want to say it. But when it finally comes out, it comes out in a torrent. He told me before the third fight, he said he learned to fight because somebody stole his little bicycle when he was 12 or 13. Stole his bicycle. It was, I was 15 years old. I didn't have a bike. I was working in the fields with a mule. Uh, I was, uh, and I was there eight hours in a broiling sun. And I was going to get married at that point. And when I left uh, um, South Carolina I must have been about maybe 18 and uh, I was working in a slaughterhouse killing cows with a baseball bat or, not, or a club you know uh, I don't want to hear about his problems he never he never had any problems and then he had the white men become his syndicate and they paid for his fights and he gave him a salary I had no salary I'm in a slaughterhouse with blood on my ankles from the you know, a killing move. And, and, and I had a, whatever I got, I had to earn it. Hmm. He didn't always feel that way. Well, he felt yeah. he had to earn it, but I mean, he didn't feel that way about Ali. Could we, could we talk a little bit about one of the first times I heard about you, heard from you when I was a kid, was you talking about Customato and yeah. Mike Tyson. Um, I just wonder what your feelings are now, now that his career is over, apart from the bizarre Roy Jones fight. Um, what are your feelings about Customato and his legacy and Mike Tyson? Well, Customato, Customato. First of all, I felt he was—I felt he was a madman. Hmm. I mean, because he was so intense about boxing. He used to tell his fighters a story. Um, and, he, and he, he told me this. He said, a fighter a fighter should have fear. He should be afraid. A fighter who has no fear, I don't even want to train because he's crazy. And, and hmm. that's not going to help. And he, and he tells his story. I think he made it up. But, who, but he told me the story, so I'll repeat it. He used to have us take a shortcut through the park to get home at night when it was getting dark. He's like a little kid. And at the end of the, in the middle of the park, there was a monster with all these um, arms and everything. And I would turn around, I'd run out of the park, and I'd go a different way. It was longer, but I'd go a different way. And one day, I kept on going. And you know what I found out? The monster was an old tree. Those are the branches. Mm. So if you really think you're afraid of it, you got to face it anyway. And maybe there's no reason to be afraid. That was him. But he was, I'll tell you, he knew, I mean, he knew boxing. He really did. Um, and uh, he was smart enough to know that Floyd Patterson couldn't have beaten Sonny Liston with a gun and an axe. 
And that's why he kept running away from the fight, and finally Patterson made him make the fight and got mad at him because he didn't want to make it. He knew the sport up and down. Now, he introduced me to Tyson when Tyson was 12, hmm. up in the Catskills. Cush, Cush trained, he didn't train, he had a Teddy Atlas first, and then uh, Rooney. Uh, Cush thought he was too old to train. But when he saw the talent, the raw talent that Tyson had, he wanted, that's how he got rid of Teddy Atlas. He wanted to be in charge of the fighter directly. Um, he wanted one more shot. And because of that, that's why he was rather lax. And Mike used to say he used to sneak out of the house in Catskill, go back to Brooklyn and pull stick-ups and other stuff. He got thrown out of uh, out of high school uh, and uh, Cus wouldn't tell Teddy because uh, he knew Teddy would get upset. He wanted Teddy to get upset so he could get rid of him because he wanted to be directly with Tyson. He made Tyson what he was. He really did. Tyson was a... People think people forget. At his height, and believe me, it was a long fall from there, but it didn't take all that long to do. But at his height... He was a brilliant boxer. Never mind, you know, he, yeah, he could knock down walls with a punch, but he was a brilliant boxer. When he had all that head movement going side to side, in and out, uh, nobody could have beaten him in. Hmm. Then he thought, then after a while, it was, I'll beat him with one punch, and that was the end of Tyson. Hmm. You, you know, you, get, you can't go out to, uh, you can't go to war with no bullets in the gun, or one bullet in the gun, I'll put it that way. What do you what do you make of Customato? I've always been fascinated by how paranoid he was and mysterious. Oh. Well, let me tell you a story about paranoia and Cush that I experienced. Cush had a place called the Gramercy Gym, and it was hard to go there. You know, he they wouldn't let you in sometimes. You, you know, he, he fantasized about a lot of things. So when I called Cush. Uh, he had a guy, uh, an old guy who was a custodian there. He'd answer the phone and he'd say, Customano's Gramercy Tim, Cus ain't here. Who's this? <laughs> and if I would tell him who it was, he'd say, wait a minute, I'll see if he might be in. Cus would grab the phone and say, talk to you in 10 minutes. Where was your phone number? I'll, I'll call you in 10 minutes. And he would call me in 10 minutes. And I hear this terrific roar. And, uh, he said, uh, I got to go now, I got to go now. He would go to a payphone in his subway because he thought they, quotes were following him. And so he would call from the payphone. One day he said to me, let's have dinner tonight. I said, oh, okay. He said, um, uh, I thought you didn't go out. You know, you sure were going to be poisoned. And, of course, they, they, they yeah, his enemy, they knew who he was. Um and he said, oh, we'll go out to, you like Chinese? He said, let's do that. He said, meet me on one, one of the corners in Times Square. We meet him. Then we walk up to 50th Street. Then we start walking behind the houses. We're walking in backyards. And we make another turn, another turn. Finally, we come out on 7th Avenue. And uh, he said, we'll be here. And it's the House of Chan. I mean, everybody knew it. You know, it was a hot restaurant in those days. I said, aren't you afraid to eat? He said, no, 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 no. Chinese food. They said, I, 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 and most people come here with Jewish. They never think I would eat here. That's us. Amazing. What are you, um, just in closing, I mean, 90 years old at this point, when you look at where boxing is now compared to the heyday that you used to cover, it, does it have a chance at coming back to prominence? No, it'll come back. It, it come, fighters will have to bring it back. First of all, you've got to remember, you're saying this to me. Well, where are you right now? What city are you in? I'm in Stanford, Connecticut. Okay. You're in Stanford, Connecticut. So far removed from where boxing is flourishing, that it isn't funny. If you're looking for heavier fighters, the heavyweights, the lightweights, 
you got to look to the Eastern Bloc, you know, to the Russian countries and the countries around around them. Um, because those, why is that? Because that, those guys are eating one potato a day. Yeah. If you're looking for the lighter weights, you really got to go for the champs. You really got to go to Latin America. Why? Because those guys have one bowl of rice a day. I don't know anybody who ever said, you went to Harvard, I'm going to graduate. I think I'll try boxing for two months and get hit in the face for a while. you got to be really hungry to become a great boxer. And that's why during the Depression, we had so many boxers, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't uh, shake a stick at them. You know, um, when I was a kid, there were eight champions because there wasn't any junior, senior, like crap, and, and there weren't any other, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, senior middleweight or junior lightweight. They didn't, they didn't have that. And it was one boxing company. It was called the National Boxing Association. And they um, they ruled boxing. And when I was a kid, five of the eight fighters who were champions were Jewish. And then they became Italian and Polish and German. And then they became black. And then they became Latino. And that's simply because hunger makes fighters. Hmm. So in answer to your question, and it's kind of a roundabout answer, but I don't think it is. Uh, boxing, look, there's a fighter out there who's a pretty good fighter named Canelo. There are other fighters who are pretty good. Uh, we have fewer big fights. But again, you know, when I started in this business, my first year was 1950. And um, far less entertainment uh, uh, competition for the entertainment dollar. Um, and and I can't warm up. I don't think the future is MMA and all that. That's for the young kids. That's. But I'm not talking about the fighters. I'm talking to fans. That's for the young people. Um, and you know they could be in their twenties or thirties, but they're young people uh, because. I think I may have said this year earlier. If I didn't, I'll say it now. For a writer, boxing is the easiest sport to fake. Because, first of all, so much happens in a ring that unless you really know what you're looking for, you don't see it. And you get a, and, and writers who fake it get away with it because most of the crowd doesn't know what the hell. All they know is they came to see somebody knocked on his ass. The, fin- the finesse of it, the excitement of it, the, the, comp- the chess match part of it. They don't know exists, so they would be attracted because mixed martial arts is very simplistic. You knock, a, you, you shove a guy on the ground, you jump on top, and the fight's over. If you're on top of him, you're not going to get. You know, you're going to lose the fight. He's going to lose the fight. And if you did the things they do in MMA on the street, you'd go to the penitentiary. Um, their rules they are. They talk about the rules. You can't do this. Can't, their rules are a joke. Boxing, boxing is really the ultimate athletic chess match. Football on a few occasions. Baseball, when the manager's putting guys in, taking them out because the pitcher's left handed, that's a chess match. But all told, boxing delivers. Uh, if they're good, for, you know, this, you got, again, you got to have great fighters or very good fighters. If you don't have very good fighters, you don't have a match. What do you, in your opinion, with Floyd Mayweather Jr. being the highest paid athlete in the world for many of the years that he fought, um, yet I don't hear very many people clamoring to rewatch those fights. Those fights are novel no, no, because of the money no. earned. Well, Mayweather was, because Mayweather also had a lot of antisocial qualities. You know, the fighter, in people's mind, that's, well, Mayweather is not a heavyweight, but I'll use the heavyweight as an example. The heavyweight champion, when Lewis was fighting, when Marciano was fighting, um, the heavyweight champion was known as the baddest man on the planet. Because people admire brute strength, and, but they admire more than that, winning. I, I don't think... Um, Mayweather didn't have the choice. Mayweather, I hate to say this because I'm not saying this to knock him, but the truth is he appealed to a 
I, I live in outside of Las Vegas now, so I see the people who come to town with me when he would fight. And it attracts a very, um, you could say uncultured, I would never use that word, but I, I know some people would, element. Um, I thought when Mayweather, and a lot of Mayweather's fights, and there were more drug, visiting drug dealers in his and I'm, saying, I'm not saying he has a connection with drugs, I'm not saying that, but the drug dealers liked him. They liked the gold jewelry he wore. They liked that he won all the time. They liked that they could come here and bet on him. Um, and he was, and then the one thing, but Mayweather's brilliance was his downfall as far as popular appeal 10 years later, okay? Like the, the myth of the man. Because he was the greatest defensive fighter at that weight. Maybe that ever lived, because but defensive fighters, uh, they don't give you the, the flash, the excitement, you know, you get from offensive fighters. And as a case in point, he, when he would, he would, you would, he would get in, get out. You would miss a punch. He would miss a counterpunch. But when you miss a punch, you are more vulnerable and more off-balance than any time in a fight if you know how to fight. He, he would do that shoulder roll, and he would come back with a punch. No penalty for having missed. And and a bonus because he, he ducked and made you miss and came back with a punch. But that's not exciting boxing, the way most fans view boxing. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. It does. I, I, I just, it just seems like, Ali and his success and the financial success coincides with people constantly wanting to revisit the legacy. Mike Tyson still might be the most famous, popular boxer in the world. No, remember, Boy, remember, remember yeah. Mike Tyson went out badly. Yeah. You know, Ali did not, except for the fight in Brooklyn, was no fight. But to try fight here with Holmes, I think they knew there were reasons for it. I mean, he, he was used up. He was, uh, but but Tyson used. I mean, Tyson. No, Tyson had a lot of bad fights. When Tyson stopped the head movement and all that, discovered uh, discovered pleasures that you and I might not indulge in. Um, he was finished as a fighter. You got, you, you got to leave. You got to leave something. Who is the only undefeated heavyweight champion? Marciano. Okay, his legacy is there. Many people have died who saw Marciano. Many people have never seen him, but he won every one of those fights. How much potential do you think Tyson had? Like, had he not gone downhill? Enormous. Enormous because, first of all, he had proven it a number of times. Secondly, he, you know, Ali was a master of psychological warfare, getting in people's heads. Tyson used psychological warfare maybe without even knowing it. They were afraid. Well, I'll tell you a story. Teddy Atlas took him to the national uh, amateur finals. He was an amateur fighter. And they were out in um, Colorado. I, I, yeah, wherever Pike speakers, I think that's in Colorado. Yeah. And they're on a bus because he's he's gone through two guys and just murdered them. And now he's got to have another fight. But they got a day off, and as a reward, they're all going to Pike speak. So Teddy, uh, Atlas, and Tyson are sitting in the back of the bus. And ahead of them, about three or four rows, is this guy who... Uh, is supposed to fight Tyson. And uh, he's sitting with a guy who got knocked out by Tyson. And they're talking about it, and he said, uh, I don't care that you beat me. I doesn't matter. Me. Uh, I don't want to fight that animal, I'll tell you that. I want... When he said that, Teddy and Tyson looked at each other. They said, we just want to fight. Hmm. That brutality was his was his psychology. Fear. Putting fear into the other guy. Michael Spinks, who was a lovely person, 
Thank God he invested well. He's got good money. I liked him very much. He was a classy fighter in the ring, but he was terrified the night before Tyson. Terrified. And it was a performance that he's remembered more for that performance than the fact that he was the light heavyweight champion and the heavyweight champion. He's remembered more for that. Were you were you covering that fight? Were yeah. you there? Yeah. Yeah. How did you see that fight going before it happened? What was your prediction? I thought it was a fight. I thought Tyson. I saw stuff that that that. Look, Spinks beat. Well, Holmes and I argue about this who won the fights, but Spinks got two decisions over Holmes um, because he befuddled him, and I. I you know, Tyson still was at the top of his game when he fought Spinks. And I thought, well, you know, Spinks is a clever boxer. If he can go rounds, then maybe he can get something going, you know. Uh, but it didn't go minutes. No, 90 seconds. Yeah, something like well, that, yeah. Well, and that kind of money, what was that like for for an athlete to earn, I believe Mike, uh, Michael Jordan was earning two or two and a half million dollars for a season, and Tyson earns $21 million for 91 seconds. Like, I remember just blowing my mind as a kid when that happened. Like, this guy is only 21 years old. He could be a billionaire before That was the worst thing old. that ever happened to him. Hmm. The fact that he was only 21 years old. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't like to use this example. I'm going to use it anyway, fuck it. Norman Mailer wrote an incredible war novel called The Naked and the Dead. Yeah. But he wrote it, it was his first novel. Had it been his second novel, he'd have gone on and done a lot of greater things. But he could never match what he did in the first effort. And psychologically, that made him less of a competitor. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but a lot of things make sense to me. I think sometimes it makes sense to nobody else. Well, you don't you don't think you think at that time Tyson believed in his mind he could never do better than he had done there. No, he, he would never have to do better. He'd never have to. That's what it is a big difference. Huh. Huh. Interesting. Because it seemed as though he was never that fighter ever again. He never really had to suck it up. In other words, when he got in real trouble near the end of his career or late in his career, why don't you take the two Holyfield fights as an example? Sure. Holyfield kicked the crap out of him in the first fight. Really, kicked the crap out of him. The second fight became very clear right away Holyfield was going to do it again. And from my, in my opinion, and I, and I would say this, and I never talked about it with Mike because some conversations you don't have with Mike, but I believe he saw quite early in the second fight he couldn't beat Holyfield, could not beat him. That's why Bittershear was. He was not going to get knocked out. He was going to get disqualified. That's what I think. Hmm. That's, you know, he, and, and in the first fight, anyway, the, the fact that what happened to him just, um, it couldn't happen to him. So if he couldn't beat Holyfield, he was not going to let Holyfield have great glory for beating him. Yeah. Last question, Jerry. How are you feeling at 90 years old? You sound very lucid, very clear. Well, how I, are... I, I, I just put, I just told my seeing eye dog to lay down. No, I'm fine. My biggest problem, my mind is fine. I'm still working for the paper. And I'm still writing books, as you know. Um, and this year, I wrote my first novel. Hmm. It came out. And it's a novel I'm very proud of, because I, I, I needed, I, what am I going to write? i got to write something I know. And it's that guy, it's not a sports novel. I covered the Newark riot in 1967. Um, and it's about that city and chaos, and I love that city. I, I lived there for years. Uh, it was city and chaos, the riot. After the riot, 
the hatred between the Italians and the blacks grew intense because the other ethnic groups were leaving town, and it was left to them to fight for the political spoils. That was going on. Then I brought the mafiosos that I knew, and I know quite a few of them for boxing. I brought them into the book because they're going to fix the mayor election. And it gets tenser and tenser, but the glue that holds the whole book together is a love affair between a black college girl and an Italian college boy at the same school, Montclair State University. And they are, um, uh, I'll tell you how bad it was. My wife happens to be Afro-American. We dated six years after the riot for the first time. And we had a lot of trouble. But five months after the riot, when this book takes place, they could not have held hands and walked down any street in Newark, New Jersey. That's how bad the city was. Forget, forget Jim Crow and forget the Mason Dixon line. This is Newark, New Jersey. And, it, and what they had to go through, and I won't spoil it for you if you happen to read it one day, what they had to go through, I'm not going to tell you whether they made it or not, but they really had to go through a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's the book, and my wife, and, and everybody everybody in the book is a real person with a different name. I changed their names to protect the guilty. The three mafiosos have the same name, because you can't lie with a dead man. And um, the black girl and the, and the Italian guy, although I'm not Italian, many of the things are me. There's a scene on the ferry our first date, and uh, well, you're trying not to say I'm falling in love. Never go where there's a full moon on a body of water because you're cooked. <laughs> and that's what happened to us that night. And we're still married after 45 years. That's what happened to us on the ferry that night. And that's what happened to these two kids. So a lot of it is a lot of her. But she always says, listen. When I hear you talking about the book, you better tell them I'm not the girl that got laid in Brandsburg Park, Newark. I Jerry, said, uh, yeah. I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Uh, it, it's a joy. Okay. Hey, I'm glad somebody remembers my name. Well, no. Sometimes I, mean, I don't. <laughs> well, you were you were always one of these writers who covered boxing that one of the first ones where I heard your voice and I always thought wouldn't it be a treat to have a chance to talk to him and 35 years later here we are so that's funny thank you for listening to this week's episode of tourist information the producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself Bryn Jonathan Butler thanks for listening